It's Thursday, February 10th, and you're tuned into the Cleveland Baseball Talk podcast. I'm Joe Noga, joined by Paul Hoynes. Hoynesy, uh, we had Rob Manfred, Commissioner of Major League Baseball, uh, speak to reporters down in Orlando uh, about an hour and a half ago as we record this podcast. And what was kind of surprising was that he didn't officially delay spring training. He sort of held out hope that this bargaining session that's going to occur on Saturday uh, in New York with the uh, Players Association uh, could yield some sort of progress that would uh, prevent them from having to, to delay the beginning of, uh, of training camp. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if he was just holding off the inevitable, inevitable, you know, Joe, and until, uh, you know, they, they meet with the players, uh, the owners meet with the players on Saturday. But, uh, you know, I, I just think that's, you know, that's, that's kind of, uh, you know, the, the, there's no way they'll, they'll be able to start on February 15th or 16th. You know, it's just he, he I mean, uh, Manfred even said that even if they get, reach a deal that Saturday, they, they, they have to ratify the deal before camps open. Both sides have to ratify the deal. And then players have to get to uh, spring training. And, uh, you know, some of a lot of guys are in Florida. A lot of guys are in Arizona, but, you know, there's a lot of guys in the Dominican and, and in Venezuela. And, you know, so that, that's going to be, uh, it's going to take a while. You know, I, the commissioner said a few days, I think at least a week to get everybody in camp, I would think. Yeah, I, I, it's, he, he did say, you know, hey, I'm an optimist. That's why I'm saying this. And I can understand why, you know, you don't want to say, oh, we're officially going to delay things even before you have that, uh, that, that session on Saturday. If you come out of that session and you're nowhere even close to, to, to you know, seeing eye to eye, then, then maybe you make the move to make the, the delay official just to sort of let people reset. But uh, he even said, you know, I'm not going to speak about anything unless I've talked to the Players Association about setting a calendar. And that, that sort of makes, makes perfect sense. Uh, he was asked whether the... March 31st opening day date is in jeopardy. And, and that's one where he said, you know, uh, I'm an optimist. I believe that we're going to be there, but again, you need three to four weeks of, of conditioning. He said, you know, we saw what happened in 2020. We saw what happened in 2021 with the, with the injuries and the rise in injuries that way when, when, you know, things were in a compressed time frame. So, uh, I just really can't, they're not really going to uh, jeopardize their, their assets, their, their arms and, and the players uh, health and safety. Uh, that's going to be for, uh, primary when they determine this calendar. Yeah. He said at least four weeks of training camp, Joe. So I, I would think that, and then I thought with what was telling is that when he said, uh, when he was asked about uh, starting the season as scheduled on March 31st, he said, I believe we'll be able to reach an agreement that will allow us to play a full season. Now he didn't say when that season would start. So uh, I thought that was very telling. Uh, as far as the way he opened the press conference, he did sort of run down a, a list of concessions. And if, if you listen to it, you think about it, uh, there's, there's a lot more that's already been discussed and thrown out there and put on the table and, uh, you know, places where the owners have given uh, given back a little bit. And uh, he, he listed a whole bunch of things like uh, it, it, we talked about the universal DH. We talked about the 
the idea of some sort of draft lottery of some sort of uh, player bonus pool for, for first and second year players. All of those things are, you know, either on the table or have been, you know, not completely shut off uh, by owners as, as, as far as, uh, you know, drastic changes to what, what, what the CBA looked like before uh, is, is uh, obviously this is a, an attempt to get in front of the cameras and, and put that out there, but, and the players aren't doing, you know, uh, the same kind of uh, PR work, I guess. Uh, theirs is more grassroots on, on Twitter. Uh, but, you know, from, uh, from a certain perspective, it does look like the, the league is trying to make, make a, efforts here to, to move the process forward. Yeah, uh, you know, he said uh, we've accepted the universal DH. We've accepted, uh, you know, the, the elimination of draft pick uh, compensation. Uh, we've, uh, you know, we've, we've, we we're open to uh, the bonus pool, you know, for, uh, for younger players, for, you know, players with less than, uh, you know, two years of service time. So, you know, those are all positive things, I guess, but there's the gap between those, Joe, is so wide. You know, the players want, what, a $100 million bonus pool? The, the owners have, you know, have, have come up with a $10 million bonus pool. I don't know how you build a bridge between that. I guess, I guess you can, but, you know, that's the thing. That's, you know, the devil is in the details. And right now, we don't, they haven't got to the details, it doesn't sound like. Right. And, and you know, maybe something comes out of this uh, session on Saturday that, that gives us optimism, gives us hope. But... Uh, I, I don't know how they get that far uh, when they're that far apart uh, on in, in one day, in one session. I think it's going to take multiple sessions. And it's surprising. This is only the fifth time they've met face-to-face since the lockout went into effect, which, you know, uh, again, just sounds like a ridiculously small number of meetings when so much is at stake and, and so much is going on. Uh, outside of, uh, you know, wherever they're negotiating. Uh, what have we heard from, uh, we were able to get in touch with a couple of Guardians players. Uh, I talked to Austin Hedges. You talked to um, Andres Jimenez and Logan Allen, uh, among others. What's the feeling from, uh, you know, those players who are sort of in limbo right now? Yeah, I mean, those players, you know, are, are right now when I talk to uh, Andres Jimenez and, and uh uh, Logan Allen, you know, I've talked to uh, Beaver and, and Police Act and and uh, um, and uh, uh, Tyler Freeman and uh, Richie uh, Palacios, those guys, and they're all kind of just going along as if this is a normal spring training, our normal normal off season, I should say, in preparation for spring training. Now, you know, guys like uh, Freeman and, and Palacios have never been to a big league training camp. You know, I've never been, you know, officially on a 40-man roster. This is their first time, so it's all new to them. But, you know, with uh, Logan Allen, he said, you know, he's just taking it. Uh, the only precaution, I guess, especially with pitchers, is that they don't want to be, you know, they, they don't want to, you know, kind of reach peak, uh, their, their peak right now, and, and the lockout could still last three weeks. They're trying to, you know, they've been throwing since uh, December, and, uh, you know, they've thrown both, you know, I talked to a uh, police act beaver and the Logan Allen, they're, they're all thrown two bullpen sessions a week. They're playing catch six days a week. And, uh, but they just don't want to ramp ramp it too far up 
and then have have to kind of back off again. And, you know, I think that's what happened a lot, you know, during the 60 game sprint last year in 2020, when, you know, they had basically two spring trainings and, uh, you know, players got to their plateau and then had to back off and that's where injuries happen. So I think they're just kind of walking that razor's edge right now. Yeah. And you talk about a guy like Bieber who, who did it exactly. He found the magic formula. He, he found, you know, that, that sweet spot and was in at his peak right when the season started both in 2020 and in 2021, because his first two months of, you know, each of those seasons was, was fantastic lights out. That was, you know, Cy Young stuff. Um, And like you said, the reason you don't want to peak, you know, before that is, when you get to the end of the season, that's when you're going to run out of gas. Yeah. And, you know, he said, uh, you know, Bieber told me that he feels so good. It's scary. And that's kind of prompted him. He doesn't know if he should go just kind of keep pushing it, you know, pushing the envelope or just kind of stay where he's at until they get the, you know, the green light for it to come and the report to camp. Right. Uh, wanted to take a minute here uh, and just mention, uh, Former Major League star uh, Jeremy Giambi, the brother of Jason Giambi, who was with the Indians uh, back in 2013. Uh, Jeremy Giambi passed away suddenly last night uh, in California. Uh, the news getting out last night. Uh, just uh, sort of a uh, 47 years old. Just really scary to think. Um, and you know, no official cause of death has been released. Uh, uh, from the family or from uh, officials. So uh, just to hear that Jeremy Giambi uh, is, is no longer with us, uh, you know, pretty sad to hear. Yeah, definitely. You know, uh, I, I never, I didn't know Jeremy, you know, I, obviously, you know, I knew a Jason, he was a great guy and a uh, good guy to cover. And, you know, with the Jason, uh, you know, you, you know, you always hear about, you know, team leaders, you know, and, and very few guys can do that job. And he was one of them. And Mike Napoli was the other one. The only two guys I've really come I've really covered that kind of, you know, no clicks. They could unify a clubhouse. They hung around with everybody. They could bring the whole team together. And, uh, you know, th- that was my, you know, my impression with uh, Jason. And I'm sure his brother was a lot like that. Right. Yeah. He played for uh, several organizations, including Oakland with his brother, uh, played in Philly and in Boston as well. Uh, if you've seen the movie Moneyball, he was a, a, a character or a, a, he had a, a he didn't have a role, but his his he was he sort of played in that uh, film. And uh, just the way he was in a clubhouse was sort of portrayed that way. And, you know, sort of a fun loving guy there. Uh yeah, just uh, sad to see that, uh, you know, something like that happen. And we don't we don't want to dwell on it, but, uh, you know, I had to mention it here on, on the podcast. All right, let's get into uh, today's top 25 uh, most memorable characters or personalities uh, in Cleveland baseball. Uh, only that you, you've covered here in Cleveland uh, are uh, our victim today uh, of the blind reveal uh, played five seasons in Cleveland. Uh, he amassed seven wins, 16 losses, pitching mostly in relief, uh, finished 94 games at a 366 ERA uh, with 44 saves, uh, the bulk of those coming in the 1984 uh, season and the, I'm sorry, 
the 84 season and the 86 season. Uh, but uh, during that time, just a, a lot of character, a lot of personality. He, uh, he posted 97 strikeouts in 179 innings uh, for uh, Cleveland. Who do we got, Hoinsie? Who's, uh, who's the man who played uh, for Cleveland between 83 and 87? Got to be Ernie Camacho, Joe. Ernie Camacho, one of my one of my all time favorite players. Just uh, he's not going to be on the Mount Rushmore of uh, of Cleveland baseball players, but uh, <laughs> as far as leaving a lasting impression, definitely a great guy to cover. Uh, really an interesting guy to cover. He uh, he came from uh, he came the Indians acquired him. This is not. Listen to these three guys they got in this deal. <laughs> Ernie, Ernie Camacho, Jamie the Rat Easterly, and, and Gorman Thomas on uh, June 6, 1983, for Rick Manning and Rick Waits. And from, and Camacho was like in a class by himself. He was, you know, he was a guy with a great arm, and, uh, but he wanted to throw like, you know, 20 different pitches. So Pat Corrales, the manager, finally got a hold of him and said, if you want to stay in the big leagues, we're going to make you a closer. We're going to make you a reliever, but you just got to throw, throw your fastball. And he would, <laughs> he would go out to the mound and pound Ernie on the chest, literally hit him on the chest and say, no tricks, Ernie, just throw your fastball. And, you know, they, they, they squeezed like two or three, you know, two good seasons out of him. He was a guy that <laughs> one year he had a, a elbow surgery. And mm -hmm. nobody believed he was hurt. You know, that everybody was, oh, you can, you can pitch your way through it. All this is, but he finally, he has the elbow surgery, gets shut down and, you know, gets bone chip taken out of his bone chips taken out of his elbow. And he puts the bone chips in a specimen cup and tapes them to the top of his locker. Just so everyone knew that there was really something wrong with his elbow. Yes. He, there, was, there was another time. He, he heard it. He hurt his hand. He, he was pitching and, and there was a, a comebacker and he hurt mm -hmm. his, hurt his hand, his glove hand. And uh, so, uh, you know, he couldn't catch the ball. So <laughs> what I think it was Ron Hassey was a catcher. He would throw to the first baseman who would stand next to him and he'd flip the ball to Ernie or then the third baseman would come in and he'd flip the ball to Ernie. And finally the umpire said, you have got to catch the ball. You're not, you're not going to, this isn't going to last. You've got to catch the ball or you're leaving the game. <laughs> well, so that was on every pitch. He couldn't, he couldn't catch yeah, the ball. He couldn't catch the ball. <laughs> that's, that's crazy. I, I, he, he did have a, a, a couple of surgeries. He, he, it was more than one surgery on his elbow, uh, I believe, uh, in his time with, with Cleveland, but uh, did, did sort of, did the injury sort of derail his effectiveness? No, uh, I think he team. missed. He missed a big part. He had. He was eighty four, and I think he missed a big part of the eighty five season, mm -hmm. and came back and had a decent year in eighty six. Uh, another time, you know, he was just one of those guys that you could just walk up to and start talking to, and he, and he, you know, you you get a story. And well, one time, the the Indians, all the players had to sign one hundred and fifty, you know, photos of themselves, you know, mm -hmm. and and you know. And most guys, you know, just, you know, signed 10 a day and, and got it done. But Ernie said he saved it all to the last day, had to sign 150 pictures 
in one day and he said he hurt his elbow and couldn't pitch that night. So <laughs> another time, Bobby Bonds took him out fishing and on Lake Erie on an off day and he got seasick. And, and, and he got, then he couldn't, but then they, when he went home and he couldn't sleep because he had a water bed and that made him even more seasick. <laughs> so he, he went out on the lake, got seasick from fishing on the lake and then came home, slept on his waterbed, and that and got he couldn't seasick. sleep because of, that's that's crazy. That I, I mean, that <laughs> this guy sounds like one of those like personalities, sort of like larger than life like personalities in the in the clubhouse. Uh, but but when he got on the field, you know what what made him special? What made him special when he was on the mound? He was you know great fastball. I mean, and it, this was in a day when you know the closers weren't just pitching in the ninth inning. You know, if you look at his 1984 season, he pitched 100 innings, you know, and, mm -hmm. and 69 games, 100 innings in 69 games. So he was pitching, you know, that, that the one inning closer hadn't really emerged yet. And right. uh, so he was he was using a lot of, you know, he was he, so he was pitching in some length and uh, but a fastball, you know, he had really good stuff, uh, you know, it was a number one pick by Oakland. He'd been drafted like three or four times before that and didn't sign. And finally, Oakland made him a number one pick. Um, that's where he made his debut. And he, uh, he pitched till he was 35 years old. So uh, had a good career. But uh, just uh, <laughs> the one thing I remember, we, it was, we, uh, we were in Baltimore. Uh, and uh, it was Easter Sunday. And uh, Ernie, you know, had a one-run lead or a two-run lead in the ninth inning mm -hmm. <laughs> with two outs. He gives up like a a, a, a a shot into the corner that scores a run and makes it makes it a one run game. But the, whoever the right fielder was threw the threw the threw the hitter out at second base to end the game. And Ernie was standing right there pumping his fist because he got the save. But that was like <laughs> that was a Camacho sort of backed, like save. <laughs> yeah, he backed into a save there because the yeah. right fielder threw the threw the guy out. That's uh, that's great. I just uh, you know. You remember like bullpens by eras and by, you know, like the, the people who stand out from each era, like uh, in, in that group and, and Camacho really sort of, uh, you know, led that group or was that, was that guy that was, you know, first in your mind when you thought about Indians relievers in that era, right before like a Doug Jones sort of uh, came in and, and, and was the guy who was first in everybody's mind coming out of the bullpen for, for Cleveland at that time. Yeah, definitely. And uh, he was a guy that kind of, you know, they just kind of made him a closer. He was kind of, you know, he was, a, he, he was a guy that came over from Milwaukee, had a great arm, but really didn't have a role. He had started, he had kind of bounced around a little bit. And uh, Corrales kind of, you know, saw something in him and kind of really almost <laughs> scared him into being a closer, you know, forced him into like a square peg into a round hole. And, and uh, you know, he, he did a pretty good job for him. Well, that's great. Uh, great to great to remember a guy like Ernie Camacho, who, you know, he, he, he like you said, won't be on the Mount Rushmore of uh, of, of Indians, uh, you know, players or, or relievers from from that era. But, uh, you know, certainly a guy who stands out and, and makes you, you know, uh, you know, think about and, and recall some of those good times. Uh, Hoinsey, that'll wrap up today's edition of the Cleveland Baseball Talk podcast. We will be back again tomorrow, uh, wrap up the week, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll look forward to a bargaining session on Saturday that 
who knows, maybe things could start to shake loose and, and we get closer to actually talking about baseball here uh, in, in the, in the coming weeks. That would be great, Joe. Talk to you then. <laughs>